to the vent room where respiratory therapists can come and get a little inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry. This week's episode is sponsored by UT Health San Antonio's Degree Advancement Programs. Visit AdvanceYourRTCareer.org to learn more about their one to two year online bachelor's and master's programs. Be ready for your next opportunity. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on another episode of The Vent Room. Today, we're joined by Gary Mefford. Is it Mefford? Mefford, yes. M-E-F-F-O-R-D. Mefford. Gary Mefford, he is the Senior Manager of Clinical Operations and Sales at Hayek Medical North America. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's, uh, I've been listening to the podcast. I'm kind of a fan, and uh, it's nice to be on here and talking about stuff. So with that, what's a little bit of your history as a respiratory therapist? Well, uh, there's more than a little bit of history of me as a respiratory therapist. I actually kind of thinking before I came on here, I thought about that a little bit, and um, it goes way back, and it's one of those stories, well, you know, first I was born, and then it's just, it's a little bit after that, but I recall as a child, my grandmother used to watch this show, and it, it's certainly going to date me, but uh, it was on in the early 60s called uh, Dr. Ben Casey, and I remember very distinctly, Grandma, like most folks, had one of those cough, or, um, tables that you set the TV trays. And the bottom one had wheels on it, and I took all the other ones off, and I would push that TV tray around the house like Dr. Ben Casey busting through the double doors. And, and then fast forward, and um, in my mid-teens, my father was the president of a local topical fish club, and one of our members was a director of a physical therapy department. So I got a job as a physical therapy assistant uh, before I was even a junior in high school, and I just loved it. I just loved it. I took to it. Um, then we moved. My dad retired. We moved to Nebraska. Well, a few years into my adulthood, uh, I was working at Hastings Pork in Hastings, Nebraska, the world's largest pork farm. It was so fun digging trenches and cleaning out pork pens. And uh, there was an opening that came up in the local paper that was uh, an OJT for respiratory therapy assistant and no experience necessary. And I thought, you know what? I worked in physical therapy. I got some experience. I went and they, they hired me and uh, I, had, I actually got hired for a physical therapy job, assistant job, an RT assistant job, and RT had national credentialing, so I thought, yeah, maybe I'll do this credential later. So I started, and it was just like a duck in water. It's just been perfect for me from the beginning. I've loved it. I love interacting with patients. I love the technical part of it. Uh, there's always something to learn. You never know it all, um, and it's been a blast for me, and I've had a lot of great, um, I don't know how to put it, personal and strong uh, interactions, mainly with patients, but also with my peers that have made a very satisfying career for me. Uh, I've had a lot of frustrations along the way. Um, I think something that I've always tried to do was just to do my best to make the most difference for the patients in my care. I just, if, if, you, if a patient was assigned to me, it was for a reason. And if they weren't, there wasn't a reason I needed to get them off my assignment list. It's just sort of the way I take it. And the ones that for which I have a reason I've just got to make a difference. And um, that, you, you know, you put yourself out there on that level and it is very satisfying work. There's nothing that can touch it. There's, you know, I mean, I've been in hospitals most of my life 
and you think about the roles that everybody else carries, there's, there's just nothing that puts it all together like respiratory. We're at the bedside. We're called for every emergency. Uh, I have a friend of mine used to say, we're the smartest ones in the building. And I mean, they'll call you to fix things that aren't anything near respiratory because they know you're, you got ingenuity and you can figure it out. Um, it's just, you know, and, and the other thing I always liked when I was a, a supervisor in acute care hospitals, you know, I'd work in the night shift. If there was a party in the hospital, you were invited. So it was a lot, of, a lot of fun during the holidays sometimes. So it's kind of a neat job. You're everywhere, and um, and you're supposed to be everywhere. But that's kind of the hard part sometimes. But um, so I, uh, you know, I kind of have had many different jobs in the field. I was uh, for a little while in Fort Worth. I was a um, overcare flight for respiratory. I worked in the nursery there and at Harris, and then. Um, for a little while, I worked for uh, uh, one of my uh, great respiratory friends, Ravel Hicks. I uh, worked with him quite a bit over the years, and he sort of was a mentor to me in many ways. And he had taken directorship at Osteopathic. And he it had been kind of uh, lax before he started, and I had worked with him before at, at, um, at Vencore. And uh, so it had been, or no, it was at THC, and it had been pretty lax. So I went in there to help him as a day supervisor. And... Um, turned out it was as, after Arzenet broke. So we were teaching our doctors uh, to try to use six milliliters per kilogram and work up the PEEP scale. And of course, the history there was every male got a liter, every female got 850. It didn't matter if they were tall, big, you know, it, there was, it didn't matter. That was about whatever, you could set your ventilator in the department and bring it down if you knew it was a female or a male. And so we were trying to get them to work on that. And I remember something I read, I don't know exactly what it was, but I remember this was in... Uh, I think 2004 or so, uh, and I was sitting in the in the the tech room, and I just this dawned on me. I thought, you know what? If we just pulled the air into the patient's chest instead of pushed it, all of this bear trauma it wouldn't even be an issue. It just wouldn't happen. And so I remember it was one of those little drawings on a napkin thing. I drew something where a patient was on a Curos ventilator and on a positive pressure ventilator at the same time, and I called it the push me pull you ventilator. And I couldn't wait to go to the patent office with it. I thought I had invented something great. Well, fast forward a couple more years, 2006, uh, I got to present at AARC that year. I think I spoke on three subjects relative to long-term care. The long-term care section had like a mini vignette. We had six CEUs that we just did ourselves. And um, also that year, I was, I, I, with, without any um, reason, I don't, I don't know, but they presented me with the long-term care, especially practitioner of the year award that year. But uh so between talks, I was out wandering around the conference booths, and I came across this Hayek thing, and I was just floored because I had never, in my whole career, I'd never seen a Kiros ventilator. I mean, I heard them, they're in textbooks, but I never saw one. And here's one, oh my gosh, it's pretty interesting. And it, you put it on, and it is, it kicks. It's not, uh, it's not benign. It definitely has a physioactive effect. And so I'm talking to the people who was brought over from England. It wasn't approved by the FDA yet, but I'm talking to the folks there. And, and so then I say, so do they ever use this on intubated patients that are on the ventilator? Oh, yeah, all the time. And we do that all the time. And it, uh, it helps wean them off the ventilator. And so uh, right then and there, I knew Dr. Hayek had stole my idea. Actually, he had, he had patented it many years before. But uh, so... Really, I was enamored with it from there. I, at the time, I was a director at an LTAC. Uh, we had just gotten started, and we just proved ourselves. So we were just starting to pick up patients. Um, 
And I, I worked to try to bring this in. It was very, very new at the time, but uh, our LTAC had other budgetary needs besides a, a new Kiros ventilator. So that never worked out, but it, it sort of started my relationship with Hayek, and it has never ended since. Uh, when it came time for me to make a decision about uh, whether I needed to leave that position or not, they made something for me with them if I wanted, and um, it's just been it's just been perfect for me ever since. I. When I saw this at AARC in 2006, it was sort of, uh, I put it in one of my presentations where I talk about a little bit about my history, and I have a picture of the Holy Grail in a bubble over my head, because that's what I thought I had found. This is the most amazing tool. I mean, you don't want to start me on that road. I'm telling <laughs> it is an extremely powerful lung recruitment tool. It's an awesome non-invasive ventilator, and your patient can speak and eat and drink while they're fully supported on a non-invasive ventilator. But as a critical care tool, continuous negative added into what you're doing with your patients. Continuous negative, a simple, simple mode. You, we, we, we don't even know what it is because it's, it's been gone for so long. But you add that increase in FRC to your ventilation picture, you're going to see improved oxygenation, you're going to see decreased work of breathing, and you're going to see patients who are serially failing weaning trials be able to be successful because it's loss of FRC that's causing them to fail. So anyway... You can tell I'm kind of passionate about this. Uh, I have I've been so fortunate to be able to help so many people with it. I have so many stories, uh, just amazing, amazing things that I've been able to witness when you apply negative pressure as a means of support versus positive. Patients that were the, the staff was at their wits end, we brought this in and it made a difference. I'm going to say that it has every time. I mean, I've been very frustrated sometimes when things have gone a bit further than anything can retrieve and we just can't help people. But there's been some really interesting stories out there and um, it's and there's more every day. And that's what's cool about it. Where We've got, uh, if you go to Hike Medical's YouTube channel, you'll see there's quite a few really neat testimonials that are building up there. Patients that just insist that they give us their story. So it's it's been very fun in that way. But, uh, and that's sort of me beginning to hear. I mean, Dr. Ben Casey all the way to uh, now I'm uh, sucking on people's chest with a curious ventilator. That's definitely, you know, a, a history of like you, you had this idea, maybe somebody had it before you, um, but you were able to find this transition over time into this clinical sales role and now you're helping people in a different way because i know you know we think the iron lung we think uh as as an old device and i believe there's only like one patient currently alive that's still using the iron lung from that period of time so being able to kind of revitalize something and repackage it to where these patients are not like the iron lung attached to a room or the device because from with the the Hayek the patients are more mobile correct yeah absolutely they can set up they can you know they transfer from bed to chair the Hayek is not uh for I mean if you have uh, a UPS that's associated with it, it you can use it and, and move around on but it doesn't have a built-in battery typically so but I've seen patients I mean I've got images of a of a baby that we helped wean off the ventilator at one hospital in the South who is doing her OT. She's she's playing with her occupational therapist, standing up, wearing the curas. So it, it allows a lot of mobility. It certainly does. You you, you can move around in the bed better. You, you know, they can sit up in bed or they can move over to the chair very easily. They can do stand to sit type stuff and dangling stuff. 
and even marching at the bedside. And uh, and then there are hospitals that roll them around. I mean, we we just got back from uh, one of the hospitals that probably uses it the most of anywhere. We were at uh, Buffalo, at Buffalo General and Oshai Children's. They have a transport Hayek that's down in the emergency room. They start their bronchiolytics on it down there, uh, usually with high flow oxygen device, and they bring them up to the unit without interrupting the therapy at all, which is uh, is really cool to see. And I think that's always important because you're always trying to figure out. Uh, I know that you know some hospitals are limited with the equipment they have, and not everybody has the ability to transport on certain devices. You know, we'll, we'll take our patients off the ventilator right. to transport them. And though we are skilled baggers, we are not necessarily going to hit the same peak pressure every time, or they were getting a volume breath and now they're getting the pressure breath. So there's always some change when you add that human element to it um, overall. So with your device and being this kind of non-negative pressure, right? It's negative pressure ventilator in conjunction with the mechanical ventilator. What kind of results are you seeing or what's the return on investment for your customers investing in this product? So they have like two products, the vent and this over the long run. Well, um, before we consider it with the ventilator, it is a great uh, lung tool. It's a non-invasive support tool. It will give you equal results in most cases to your mass type support, but your patient's going to be able to continue to take fluid and eat. So the other thing is continuous negative, whether intubated or not intubated, is a great lung recruitment tool, the best way to inflate the lungs with negative pressure. So we're applying a continuous negative pressure as a lung recruitment maneuver. And if you think about our alternatives, the 30 for 30 and 40 for 40 maneuvers to recruit the lung, why are they limited to 30 or 40 seconds? Well, there's no venous return, and if you extend it much longer, your patient's gonna pass out. Well, when we apply continuous negative to the chest, we're actually improving preload. We're getting more blood back to the right ventricle, and we're opening the pulmonary capillary beds, so there's more, gonna be more blood th flowing through the lungs. So we've, we've got something to offer even before intubation. However, uh, you know, I mentioned coming back from Buffalo, we encountered one of the, the lead physicians there who is using it in, in an adult ICU. And they've had, um, just recently since COVID, they had five patients that were essentially not progressing in their weans. They were able to use continuous negative and help free them from the ventilator. So if we consider, first of all, the, the cost, the daily cost of care of a ventilator patient in the ICU and the fact that each day that that ventilator continues, the risks of prolonging that situation increase, it's always important to try to wean them as quickly as possible. So each day in the ICU, you can take whatever estimate that come from all over the place, but you know, it's going to be probably five to $12,000 a day of ICU care. I don't, I don't know exactly. I don't know if anybody does, but, um, if you can take a day off of that, you know, if you can take a day off of that for each each one of our machines in your fleet, they'll they'll basically buy themselves, um, and, you know, in that way. I mean, certainly uh, saving is a big important thing because hospitals, what they fight most now is uh, is struggling against managing loss. Um, and if we can help cut days off the ventilator care, then that's great. It's a thing that I wished I'd had at the LTAC because managing length of stay is so important to a success in the LTAC. And if you get somebody five days before discharge that develops a unilateral atelectasis, 
they don't go away fast. But I've, I mean, I've got x-rays of patients who in three hours, we completely reinflated a lung that was actually whited out due to a tumor obstructing the airway. Negative pressure can pull gas beyond obstructions. And our machine also does high-frequency chest wall oscillation and cough assist. So we can really clear the junk out of the bases. But using it with positive pressure, mainly you're going to see that in weaning. It is a really neat application. Like I said, continuous negative helps restore the natural FRC. And if you consider why most patients fail their wean, they're too weak. They develop this rapid shallow breathing pattern. It's mechanically unsound. They're basically just ventilating dead space and they fail. They start having vital sign changes. We got to put them back on. And if you go too far with that, you've actually burned muscle probably. And you're going to have to take a couple of days off to get back to the same place. If you apply continuous negative and initiate that wean, that depletion of FRC that causes the failure is held at bay. So I won't say that it's going to mean they're done today, although I have certainly seen that. But in many cases, a patient who's failing at 15 minutes or half an hour into a spontaneous breathing trial will now be able to go several hours and you've got them over the hump. Because a lot of times getting over those first few hours in a difficult wean, once they get past that, they're getting confidence, they're building strength, um, they can make it the rest of the way. Um, but it's that, that really difficult first hour of getting them through that, the really weak ones that makes, you know, that, that makes it hard. And it's a loss of FRC that causes those failures. So that's one use. Another place we've seen use is in, um, if you use it adjunctively on patients that have potentially cardiac issues. Um, I recall a case when I worked in the ICU years ago with the, we were using the oscillator and this gentleman, um, it just was his mechanics, but whenever we increased the map over about 17 on the oscillator, his cardiac output went out the basement. And so we just had to do everything we needed to do for that guy below 17. Well, if I'd have had a Kuros, I could have put minus 10 on his chest and we could have used about five or 10 centimeters less map. We'd have never even approached the issue with his cardiac output. It just is a way of attenuating the mean intrathoracic pressures, and that's going to help venous return and cardiac output uh, on patients on positive pressure. There's also a potential that holding the lung open with negative pressure, uh, there's some interesting papers uh, that really are in, uh, in support of APRV, but they talk about casting a broken lung. <clears throat> Uh, Gary Nyman and, and Dr. Habashi in that group, and they just talk about using prolonged eye times or P-highs to hold the lung open. Well, that's great, but you got all the side effects of positive pressure when you do that. I can do the same thing for the patient with negative pressure, and there's no side effects. We're actually improving venous return, and we're improving the function of the heart. So, you, and so that offers a means to, uh, in that ARDS picture, to keep the FRC that we've got you're going to, you're maybe, you know, once atelectasis and inflammation begins, that's a, a process separate from what I can do with my device. But if I can prevent that recurrent reopening and closing of the alveoli, uh, attenuate some of that breathlessness, the CNF actually has that effect, you can make a big difference for those patients potentially. And uh, hopefully they don't need the ventilator or if they get it, they're off more quickly because we also can help them to wean. Well, I think especially nowadays, right, the healthcare system and the way we run is, is very different. You know, um, if we kind of look at our history, maybe we were a sick care system, you know, we cared for the sick. Now we've transitioned more to a healthcare system where we're more interested in our length of stay. We're looking at return, um, at readmission rates, right? So 
how do we get people out of the hospital faster? You know, nowadays we sure. don't want to, you know, keep them there. And then we're, we get dinged if they do have a VAP or they develop a, a pressure ulcer in their process in the hospital. But it makes sense that this, the negative pressure, it's natural. It, it, it's, it's physiology, right? That's how we work. Absolutely. <laughs> physiologically currently. So supporting someone in that manner, it's, it isn't beating up their lungs and it's allowing them the heart and everything to work as it does. So I, I definitely can see how, you know, there's minimal, if any side effects, because we're working with the body where positive pressure is, exactly. is kind of going against that natural physiology of the way our body works. But over time, I mean, for, I guess, what would be the most popular patient or the, the patient that usually would be using this in the home? What diagnoses do you see most often? Well, in the home is almost predominantly neuromuscular. Uh, not entirely. Um, we, we've got some other, uh, and if you, like I said, we've got uh, we've got testimonials on our website of people we've helped to relieve, let, get their trach out. Uh, but for the vast majority, it is neuromuscular. Uh, more and more COPD, but uh, the majority of the patients that we help at home probably have some sort of neuromuscular weakness in the majority. Um, acutely, it's it's a it's a broad game, and and at home there's there's a group that has kind of come to the fore recently. There was an interesting paper that came out of Japan a couple of years ago, and then there's been some good research to, or early research to support it. But there was a young gentleman that had developed a, a pulmonary illness, or I guess a systemic illness, called protein losing enteropathy, and I had never heard of this before, but it is a known a long-term side effect of the Fontan procedure. So this guy, I think he was age 13, he developed this, which is essentially a wasting illness, fluid retention and uh, uh, liver failure as part of it. He had to be frequently have his ascites drained. And he, one of the other issues that'll come up in that, that uh, illness process is something called plastic bronchitis which I hadn't heard of that very much before either, before I started doing this, but it seems to be something that is not unusual in that population. So his physician put him on BCV to clear the plastic bronchitis, to, to help him to cough it up, because he was having a heck of a time with a cough. He cleared out, and then the, ar the article that I'm talking about, it, it actually shows perfectly formed bronchial casts that he coughed up, and he, he got a lot of relief. Well, they also measured about a 20% increase in cardiac output when he was using the device. So he continued to use it long term as a like a rehab therapy. And ultimately, they were they found and that's what this paper was pointing out. They found that that essentially untreatable protein losing enteropathy had gone into full remission after he had used the device at, uh, on a long term basis. So uh, for these patients, there, there's there's a fair number of them out there. It, you, know, you, you meet these doctors, these congenital cardiology clinics that take care of these patients. And there's a fair number of them out there. And there's really not a lot that can be done for them. But BCV seems to be making a big difference for those guys. And then in addition to that, that population I've had doctors say maybe shortly after the, they have the surgery, this could be started for them. So we may see more of those types of patients as well at home. I have definitely taken care of pediatric uh, patients post-Fontan that had that plastic bronchitis. And it's, it's definitely a challenge um, yeah, because sure. when I, like that particular patient, I remember 
God, and this is over 10 years ago, the them bronking and then everything coming out. And it's that clear just cast of, of what was inside. And you, you just wonder how they're able to, to overcome. I'm actually a delegate for the congenital heart Academy, which is a new organization. That's pro that is um, predominantly it's cardiology attendings, pediatrics uh, worldwide that have been doing a lot of webinars. And I'm one of the respiratory therapists working with them as they're doing different things. So it's really great to think of these particular patients as like a subset to your normal that you think of, which is your neuromuscular patients and, you know, a 20% increase in cardiac output for a patient that has a bad heart because they're going to have to go through all these surgeries is definitely something that even prepares them for that next phase. Well, I mean, to have your the liver function improve to the point that you don't have to go have ascites drained monthly, I mean, that's a life change right there, I would think. I mean, I can't even imagine the challenges that these people have faced. I've We've started some of them. Every one of them has a, a medical history that just blows your mind, what they've been through in their life. And it's fascinating how um, the human organism tries so hard to be normal in spite of everything that it's been through. And it, it, these are just normal people that uh, have had a, a bit of a, a bad role when it came to their heart. <laughs> and um, it's really cool that uh, you know, we, we've got some that have just really are proclaiming big differences in, by using the device. With the patients being happy. I mean, I think that's the ultimate goal. No matter if you're a respiratory therapist in leadership, a respiratory therapist at the bedside in sales, or in equipment, our goal, no matter what role we hold, is to have an effect on people's lives in a positive manner. Um, so getting that job satisfaction from seeing how the device is, you know, changing um, someone's life in even just that case study, right? So that's like one instance that's great and a good story to now look into it and further and see, you know, can that one disease process, can multiple people be affected the same way? And then you have that evidence to, to throw that into the protocol of, hey, this is something we need to look into for all of these patients because it will prevent this decrease right. in function and, and help the body not have to fight so hard. Well, one area that we are seeing, uh, I think we, we, we've grown more evidence here recently. There was a, a good paper that came out in December. Uh, the group in Buffalo that I mentioned published, I think, one of their, I don't maybe their fifth or sixth paper on the subject. They've had two good ones in respiratory care. This one was uh, about using BCV in the pediatric population with respiratory failure. It also included a section about how to predict which patients this is not going to be successful on, which is kind of an important factor to know. Um, and they found that in their mixed respiratory failure patients there, they were able to prevent intubation nearly 70% of the time. I think the number was 67%, and they had seen a significant decrease in their intubation rates in the years following the initiation of BCV. So uh, the, the, that is an area where we're seeing a lot of development. And the majority of those patients are bronchiolytics, some asthmatics. And it, you know, it's an interesting thing. The, when I apply continuous negative to an individual's chest, we're increasing the FRC. And I've done dozens and dozens and dozens of conferences in the years I've been doing this, and I can almost diagnose asthma 
in a conference booth. Because if I increase your FRC with that machine and you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe how easy it is to breathe. And I mean, I've had this dozens of times. I've had people get very excited because of the decrease in work of breathing. And I can almost diagnose your asthma. So it's that increase in FRC that makes a real difference. And we can see that in what's happening in Buffalo and what's happening in these other children's hospitals. They're putting it on their asthmatics and their bronchiolytics in the ER and bringing them up to the unit that way for a reason. Because if you break the therapy, you set yourself back and the therapy makes so much difference. I, I, um, uh, not really anything that's evidence. I mean, although Buffalo Children's papers are really important, but this to me is this is this is my evidence. I showed up at a children's hospital probably about nine or ten months ago, one of one of the hospitals that I follow, and um, one of the therapists, uh, a guy Matt, comes running up to me. I mean, full speed. I mean, he's just coming straight at me, and he's not a little guy, you know. And I think, oh my gosh, what, what's going on here? And he stops, just cuts, you know, cuts it off right in front of me. Scary, Gary, you won't believe it. You won't believe it. That they had the laryngoscopes out. Everybody was in there. They're all gowned up. They're ready to intubate. And I said, can we just try the cure us? And they said, okay, you got five minutes. And he said, I brought it back. We put it on him, and in a few minutes, the retraction stopped. And I turned around and everybody was gone. That's the kind of difference it can make. I mean, I, I was at a, at a hospital where they had a little girl who had had tracheal reconstructive surgery that was completely obstructing her airway. BiPAP would not do any good. They weren't going to retrach her. It was a result of a long-term trach. And um, she was failing. I, I mean, you know, if you've done this long enough and you've worked with kids, you've seen severe retractions. Well, this was the, the max. And so we were we were there training and the, the intensivist came and said, hey, I'd like you guys to look at this patient. Maybe your machine can help. So we went around and looked. And I mean, have the, you, you as a therapist have had those situations where you walk up to a patient and go, oh, my gosh, this isn't going to last much longer. You know, it was one of those where I just felt like an hour maybe. And so we, we said, okay, we'll try. We brought the cure and we put her, in, put her on on a relatively low continuous negative. And one of the effects of continuous negative is it dilates the airways so it can pull gas beyond obstructions. And it, it was able to stint that trach open with negative pressure and instantly, almost instantly, the retraction stopped. In a few minutes, she fell asleep. And mom says, well, that's the first time she slept in days. And so... They used it on this little girl, I don't know, a week or two, and uh, next thing we know, she's discharged home. That allowed that trachea to firm up and form up and create a patent airway, and that, and that little girl who was on the verge was able to discharge the home. And to Not see that instant reversal, I mean, it's just what else does that? I just, I haven't, that's why I'm with this, because I, I, I've tried it all. I mean, I've inflated people with IPBB until... You know, and, and and what a waste of effort that was. But this thing works. Anyway, sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, you're passionate about what you do and the product that you represent. And I think that that is something that, you know, when I talk to people about getting into um, this type of role, you really do have to believe in the product. You... It, it comes across in what you do. If you're not passionate, if you don't... If you truly don't believe in the results that your product can provide to patients, then why are you representing it? You know what I'm saying? So exactly. it's great to see the passion that you have about the work you're doing. And, you know, like some people say, you know, why do you get into education? Well, I can, I educate respiratory therapists and every patient that they touch is a, is another patient that I've helped. 
And same thing with your device. Like every patient that a facility places on your device, you guys have a handle in helping and getting people to get off the ventilator sooner or be able to get to go home. It's a, it's a great thing that we do. And I know sometimes we like take for granted the, the impact we have uh, across the board. So uh, it's definitely interesting to see, because I know that, you know, sometimes respiratory therapists feel like the second class citizens within the hospital. Um, Sometimes we don't feel as recognized as our nursing counterparts. Um, So it's, it's one of those things where the therapist and comes running to you, Hey, I'm in this situation. And you have a team of people that's about to put a tube into a patient and you get that five minutes. And in that five minutes, you prove your point. You know, sometimes I feel like as respiratory therapists, we're, we're trying to prove a point many times. And, and it's a lot of gut instincts. You know, one of the things that I say, but you know, what's the difference between a novice, somebody that's intermediate and an expert is, you know, that novice, that first year to two that you are training as a respiratory therapist on your own after you've graduated school, you start seeing patterns. I know with like the poison control, I went to an interesting uh, CEU event many years ago and a poison control person will have an orientation for one year. And that kind of astonished me because I'm like, how many jobs do you have a one year orientation? And their explanation to that was you as a poison control specialist answering the phones, you need to be able to sit a year through to understand the poisons that you see in the summertime, which might be fertilizers and and different things are going to be very different than the poisons that you're going to see in the wintertime when you have poinsettias and, and those types of things. So as a respiratory therapist is new, that first year is about getting your timing, building your confidence. You don't have a clinical preceptor behind your back anymore. And now you are the one that needs to make those suggestions to the physicians and build that rapport because you can't just walk into a any ICU and be like listen to me it's they learn about you they realize that you do know what you're talking about um, and then they start respecting your decisions and then as you move to that intermediate you start gaining those experiences to draw on and the more experiences you have as you move forward, you get that expertise. And now you have years of experience and that gut instinct that says, hey, this is going to work. And and sometimes there's been situations where I'm like, this isn't going to work or this is going to work, but I can't tell you exactly why I just, I've seen it so many times and you're drawing on these multiple experiences from the past to be able to, to make those decisions uh, for your patients. So definitely having a passion about what you do and, and seeing that and being able to say, Hey, this is what works for some of our patients. Cause there's not every device is going to work for everybody, but if it does have a good influence for a group of patients, it should be used. I know I have not used this device in my clinical practice. Um, in the years that I've been uh, a respiratory therapist. So I would love to, you know, get my hands on it and, and, and see those. I worked with a lot of asthma patients and there's those patients that the BiPAP worked and that's great. And we didn't get into intubation. And I've seen patients where the BiPAP and the continuous didn't work and we got intubated. And 
at one time, you know, we, if they were failing, they would go to ECMO and then we had a new attending and he came from another facility where he did inhaled anesthetics for severe asthma. So it's a weekend. Of course, it's always on a Friday, right? It's right before a weekend. We're going to start doing inhaled anesthetics in the ICU on a patient with asthma to prevent them going to ECMO. And he drew on his experiences and his research. And we saved the kid from um, needing to have all this blood product and all these different things. So drawing on all those experiences over time, we ended up as a respiratory therapist in DC specifically, we're able to deliver anesthetic gases for non-anesthetic purposes. So for patients with status asthmaticus that was refractory to all of their treatments. Um, so it, it's super interesting how just everything evolves over time. And this is a kind of like old idea with the iron lung, but being applied in a new manner. Yeah, it's uh, what, what did we put in one? I, I mean, I help them develop a lot of the content for, for helping to, people to understand how this works. And we came up with something the other day. I think um, it, uh, it, it, you wouldn't think negative pressure would be innovative, but if you've never used it, it is. I mean, it's an innovation and it's a new, it's a new line of thinking. And, and that, I think that's part of our challenge is, uh, we, you know, I've, I've been told by physicians, I, I remember one pulmonologist told me, when, when Dr. Martin Tobin says, this is what I'm supposed to do, that's what I'm going to do. And of course, that's a patient that's been using our advice since 2011 uh, and you couldn't steal it from him. But, um, you know, the, and I've also heard people say, you know, similar things, but um, it, uh, you know, th this boils down to physiology, and when you understand the physiology, it, it really all makes sense. The the pressure wave of spontaneous breathing within our chest is is an important part of both car heart and lung function, and any amount of positive pressure ablates the heart part. So if you put somebody on PEEP, you put them on CPAP, whatever it is, that portion of cardiac benefits that you're getting from spontaneous respirations are gone. With BCV, they're enhanced. So that, that's, I think that's what it boils down to. But you, you talk about education. I think a big part of our job is education. That's, that's, and that's, you know, one of my loves as well. I mean, uh, and throughout my, my career, I've, I've always found a way, even if there was an educator, I still was an educator uh, because there's always stuff that people need to learn about and, and we don't go anywhere unless we learn about it. And, and that's where the fun is to me uh, is I, it wouldn't matter what patients I was assigned. And I mean, I've worked agency before and, you know, you get assigned the floor with all the hard work, but I really believe every time I get a tech sheet, there's somebody on that tech sheet I can make a huge difference for. And so I try to identify that person. Yes, I'm going to do my, my due diligence for everybody else, but I want to find the one that I can make a night and day difference for. And I would go find that patient and I would give them my time more than anybody else. And that's how we get, you know, real satisfaction from this. But that's how, you know, you, you make a bigger difference. And it's what it's about for us is really making a difference. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter if it's a floor patient or an ICU patient. It's it's the, the being able to change the course of the illness for that patient. And, you know, another thing you mentioned in there is what I call the Zen of respiratory therapy. I can remember many shifts I went into an ICU where every patient was stuck on the ventilator and hadn't been weaning for days. And in, uh, by the end of six hours, I've got every single one of them on a T-collar. And I don't know exactly how I did that, but I just went bed to bed to bed to bed to bed, and I just kept doing the steps like I'm supposed to, and they just kept moving forward until everybody had gotten where they were, you know, and where, what, you know, I mean, 
I couldn't ask somebody right out of school to do that, but you, you learn, you learn, you do assessments in a split second, you know, if it's going well or going bad and you make the interventions to prevent it or to bring them back to safety. And it, you know, in, Intensivists got got a very stimulating job. I, I don't, that, to me, that is the, the whether adult or pediatric. Those doctors are you know that's a very interesting. Pulmonologists the same way. Uh, ICU nurses very interesting work, but nobody is hands on like we are. Nobody is adjusting the life support equipment and getting these people free of it. Uh, here, here's a simple story that I think, you know, one of those times, and I, I mean, I've got many of these in my career. This has nothing to do with our product, but I was working at a, a, an LTAC hospital for agency, and um, it was one of those deals where they knew me, and they said, okay, if you, you don't wean anybody off of our ventilators here, so then they gave me the floor, so I wasn't weaning very many people, and the, the patient that I did have that was on a ventilator, the report was that they were going to do terminal wean later today. They were going to let him go because he'd been apneic. Every time they tried CPAP, he would, the apnea alarm would go off. So I did my rounds. I went up and I stopped in to see that guy. And I noticed he's on a, uh, this, a few years ago, he's on a 7200. And the apnea delay alarm is set at 20 seconds. And he's on um, SIMB at a rate of like 18. The guy probably needs 10. So he's hyperventilated. His CO2 is in the basement. And he has no need to breathe. So I put him in CPAP and 20 seconds later, sure enough, the apnea alarm goes off. Well, 10 seconds later, he starts triggering the ventilator and making tidal volumes of around 750 milliliters. So, you know, fortunately, I knew his doctor well, and I made a quick phone call. And he says, okay, well, then if you can get him on a trach collar, get him on a trach collar and uh, call me the gas. And by the end of that day, he was off the ventilator during the day and on at night, and there was no terminal wean. And so the doctor came on rounds and I guess he kind of talked to the wife about our, you know, what transpired between us. And the next time I came in that room and and this is, I mean, you can't possibly, there's just no way you can pay your, get paid enough to equal what happened in there. I mean, I go in there and that wife who was ready to say goodbye to this man who she was totally dependent on, uh, he, he was alive again. And she goes, oh, my gosh, you're the angel that saved his life. And she comes and gives me this big old hug around the neck. And we're just both in tears. But, you know, it, it's just simple doing my job, paying attention to what's going on. That, that was, I mean, what if, that, you know, they'd have come in and started, uh, you know, giving him palliative medications. And, um, you know, just kind of things could have just slipped a whole different way that day. And, you know, that's why sometimes I think, you know what, this assignment stinks. But then... I, it always turns out I got it for some reason. There's somebody there that I'm going to make a difference for. And you think, oh, this is the worst floor to have. But you know what? Somebody down at the end of the hall needs you desperately. And uh, you need to get down there. So, um, you know, I, 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 don't, I, I love this field. I love the, the career I've had and, and so many people like that. I've had so many cases where just knowing my business, just going in and doing what I'm supposed to do was life-changing. Um, and, and that, you know... That's the key, I think, is you, you've, got, uh, you've got a skill. This is a skill. This is something that we learn. We, we learn the assessment skills. We learn skills for caring for our patients and how to intervene in all the ways we have. That is a tool, and it can either be allowed to go dull or it can be sharpened, and it's sharpened through use. It's sharpened through consideration. It's sharpened through teaching others what you know. And... Um, so anyway, you want to make this an exciting career. You know, you're one of those people that's in the doldrums because you got into respiratory. 
Well, yeah, this, I'm the wrong guy to talk to because this, this is the most exciting field. I'm not telling you it's all good. I mean, if I'm so frustrated, we go into hospitals where I see therapists with tech sheets that have 80, 80 treatments on it. And I think, how in the world? And I remember one time um, we had a dinner and there was a guy at that dinner who he bragged about his 12 ventilator assignment and how he still got all his breaks. And I'm thinking it wasn't one of those people that got care. You might be able to, you know, you might be able to put the check the boxes and, but you're not providing care running like that. And it, there's a difference and, and it's hard. I mean, because you get into a position like that and, and what do you do? But for me, it's always been, it, if the people I work for aren't up to my standards, I have a hard time working for them. And I feel like that that is a, is a, a movement for improvement. When we just say this is below my standards and move on, pretty soon either the standards are going to change or something. But you don't have to be there and be part of it. If you're, you know, if you're getting 80, 100 treatments a shift and you don't have time to, to go to the bathroom, um, find some place where the work is done the way it's supposed to be. Respiratory therapy should always be based on a good assessment and a goal should be set for the patients, even if they're set on the fly in seconds. And we should know with everything that we do why we're doing it and try to make it as effective as possible. And that's how we affect improvements. That's, you know, we talked about return on investment. That's how therapists show their value is making a difference. It's not by knocking out 100 treatments, 75% of them don't even need to be given. It's by finding that person where you can make a difference the week or the rest of their life with your care and go do it. Anyway, I, I get kind of excited. Sometimes. No, no. And, and <laughs> I, I love the passion because I think that you're, you're hitting a, an important topic on like complacency, right? Um, when you, you are in a position that you're just kind of going into work, or you're dreading to go into work and you're like, okay, I'm going to be doing 80 treatments in a, in a shift and you're not providing quality care, you know, depending on the situation you're in, you can look at organizations. So like for student therapists, when they're training, they can look at organizations and be like, do I want to be a part of this team? Um, because it is a team effort. And, and, you know, Medicare does expect a pre and post assessment. So if you're stacking your treatments and you're running around, throwing the nebs on and then, going back to the beginning and take them off and you're not really providing the care they Medicare is expecting you to be observing the patient. Are they, you know, you know, very rarely does something negative happen when we're giving our standard albuterol treatment, but it, it's still possible. And if you're not there, how are you going to explain it in the end? Um, but it's, it's that pride in your job and being able to make that difference. And, you know, being there for that patient. Cause I remember many years ago, um, there was a particular CF patient in our facility. She was having just one of those days and she was refusing her therapies. She was not taking any of her therapies and, um, she was just being very obstinate. And I, t I just went in there and I'm like, Hey, you know what? You're on my list. You get your 15, 20 minutes. Let's just sit there and talk. And in that period of time, I was able to find out what happened that triggered that change in her that day. And by the end of that time, she did take her treatment um, by having that conversation and, and taking that 
that extra time, I could have easily said, you know, she's refused, go to the next one. <laughs> right. But, but at the same time, it was like, this is not her normal pattern of behavior. So being emotionally intelligent and just reaching out. And she did take her treatments that, that shift. And, you know, she's a CF patient. She does need them. It's not this um, unneeded therapy, right? Because that's the other thing. We need to be able to identify and work within a team to say, you know what, this is an extraneous treatment that doesn't need to be done. They, they're, they're beyond our care. Um, and then also escalate the patients that are PRN on your list who really do need your care. Yep. So um, I think that if you're a therapist working and, and you're, you're feeling those challenges, see if there's an organization that matches with you um, to provide the care and make the impact in people's lives that you really want to make. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to stick around at a place that's, that is not only probably making it difficult for you, but that is difficult for the patients as well. And if you feel like you've got higher standards with them, then go, go look elsewhere, find something that works better. You're going to be happier in the long run. Um, places like that are for certain people. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, uh, I don't know if I like working with many of them, but um, there's, there's folks that got to staff those places. But um, for me, I'm, I want someplace where they're as committed to doing the right thing as I am. And, and, you know, I know that's, that's certainly been the case hundred percent with Hayek from the beginning. Uh, they've done, you know, so many things that, to help patients. We, we're, you know, we're, we're growing, we've got sort of a, a unique therapy, a unique device, but uh, it, 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 once it's on a patient, once you see it do what it can do, you, you know, you, you want to use it you want to use it in clinical practice. It just, it, it can change things for you. Well, you know what? I appreciate your time today, Gary. I think we had uh, an amazing conversation that kind of went in many directions. <laughs> and um, But I think that that's the importance and beauty of respiratory care. And it is what you make it. It, it really is. It's a, it's a great field. And it is, you know, it, it, you know it's, it's not something that's, that's easy or simple. Uh, you got to get a good foundation. You got to get good basic experience. But once you have that, it can take you so many places. And um, it, it's to me, there's just nothing that can touch it. I don't care what environment you work in. Uh, I always have fun. I always have fun wherever I am. You know, it's just, it's just a, because you, you I don't know. It, there's tough places to work, I know, but it's it's really you bring it with you. Sounds good. Well, thank you for your time you. today, and I really enjoyed our talk. I did too. Thank you very much.